And like, I think the first time I told my mom, you know, mom, I love you, or kissed her on the forehead, was here in France, the first ever hug I gave my mom. I'm your special host, your special guest, your guest host, voila, that's the word. I'm your guest host, Mehdi Brother Azizi, and today we shall be talking about you, Dush. Can I take over now? <laughs> yes, you can. Welcome back to the podcast. I hope everyone is doing well. We are in season two of Dive Deep with Dush. I hope you enjoyed the first episode. We're going to continue with the same format. And today I have with me one of the most intriguing individuals I've come across here in Toulouse in the south of France. He has an incredible story to share. He has this positive aura about him in life and in general, which is super magnetizing. I can't wait for you to hear from him. Without further ado, I present to you Mehdi. Mehdi, please introduce yourself. Wow. Hello, everyone. First of all, intriguing. That's, uh, dude, I'm going to have to live up to that now. <laughs> I'm going to have to own that and it's going to be difficult. So my name is Mehdi Brother Azizi um, from Morocco. And I've been here in Toulouse for six years. Just to give everyone uh, an idea of how I met Mehdi. So um, I have this thing where before I travel anywhere around the world, I try and connect with someone locally through social media. And this is so when I land in that country, I have a point of contact. I have some local advice. So prior to arriving to Toulouse, I was in contact with our mutual friend. Um, and I tried to meet with him on many occasions, which will fail. Uh, but this one time he was like, hey, Dush, I'm meeting with friends to play beach volleyball. Why don't you come and join us? I, I've never played beach volleyball in my life, but I was like, hey, ho, let's just do this. So I turn up and that's where I meet Mehdi. And I knew he was a character straight from the offset. So we've been in touch ever since. And like after hearing more about his background and his stories, I was like, he must share his version on my podcast. So I'm so glad that he's here with me today. So just to start the conversation, how has quarantine been for you? Um, <laughs> it's been great. Now it's cool that you mentioned our mutual friend. That shall not be named. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to have his own episode. He's going to have his own episode. <laughs> because I basically switched back and forth between his place and my place. So I would spend 15 days with my family and then 15 days with him. And that kind of... Uh, how do we say, broke the routine during my quarantine. Okay. So I would go to his place, you know, ah, okay. have you that just... friendship moment, then go to my family's place, share some time with my family, with my sisters especially. So yeah, I think quarantine has been great. Did you do anything exciting, learn any new skills, you know, uh, get into new books? When it comes to skills, not really. <laughs> because the thing is, we had our exams during quarantine. So most of my time was just focusing on those exams and trying not to screw them up, trying to get the best grades I could. And it was kind of stressful at first because, you know, it's a new format to, to have exams like online, something I've never done before. And I'm not someone who likes to do things online. I prefer you know, the real deal, giving a piece of paper, a pen, and I could answer. And it's been, it's been interesting to just be able to do things from a distance. And also to distance yourself from people. Like when you go to the supermarkets, I remember being very careful at first, like wearing gloves and putting on the mask. A few days later, that habit didn't take off. It just, I dropped it. 
But uh, to this day, as you can see, I'm still wearing my mask all the time. Yeah, it's, it, I'm just realized that in, in France, in comparison to the UK, it's been policed quite strongly. So wearing a mask and having it mandatory and having policemen just enforcing it around local areas, stopping you, saying where your mask is, or even fining you. So I think the French culture and French public are taking it super, super seriously. Especially here in Toulouse. It's a smaller city than, let's say, Paris. So it's easier to enforce laws here than it is in a way bigger city. But yeah, quarantine has been great. Um, I would say I kind of broke some laws. You know, I went out a few times where I shouldn't have. No, 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 we should, let's not talk about those things. <laughs> let's not talk about breaking the law. But yeah, it, it's been great. What about yours? Okay, so I just, I just arrived back from, from the UK. Um, so it's been four months I spent in the UK uh, quarantining, and then I arrived back literally three weeks ago. So I'm super duper fresh here. It's nice to enjoy the sunshine. Um, right now, the weather in the UK has changed quite drastically, so it's, it's raining, so I hear from my family and friends. So it's nice to enjoy a little bit of summer, as opposed to being in, enclosed within the four walls of your house and stuff. Um, so yeah, it's been sweet to come back, and it's been awesome to kind of re-socialize again uh, with everyone. So just an example that I gave our mutual friend, um, just by speaking to him, and then you... You meet new people and then you get, you know, to interact with a different social circle and that leads you to a different social circle. So it's really exciting for me personally because I love talking to new people. I love hearing new stories. I love, you know, sharing these things. I love I, I love the fact that these stories are a means of self-development from not only yourself, but when I have the platform like I do now to share with everyone else, it's, it's an awesome opportunity. So it's been great to be back. Back in the game. You delved into your background at the initial comment that you made that you're from Morocco and you arrived into France. So do you mind sharing a little bit more about how you arrived into France? Because I know it's quite, quite the story. Uh, I'm going to keep it as simple as I can, really. So in Morocco, we had some financial issues for years. I think they started at around 2009-10. And ever since, things have been going downhill financially. But somehow, uh, you know, just as a family, we got closer, ever closer. And around 2012, we had the opportunity to come here to France, which we rejected at first. A family member wanted us to come here to start anew, but we said no. And then he tried again in 2014, around, I think, late August, and we said yes. We it was the only choice. It was the only way out. We couldn't stay there. It was way too hard to just uh, day after day try to find that little bit amount of money to eat. And we were six people at home. So that's, that's a lot of mouths yeah, to feed. Tough. So we came here to France. And it was really, really interesting to see how things have developed since the moment we basically said yes and started to, uh, you know, make our passports, visa, because that took 15 days, yeah. which is crazy. To this day, still is crazy. We made our passports. I already had one as a kid, but it was, it expired, so I had to make a new one. And my mom, my sisters made new passports. And now that I think about it, the funny thing is I didn't want to come here. <laughs> I did not want to come Because I'm sure life in Morocco was pr pretty good initially. I mean, it wasn't that great, to be honest. But I still, I never felt like I wanted to leave. It was my comfort zone. Yeah. I grew up there. I wanted to stay there. Mm -hmm. 
And my dad just came to me and said, hey, um, look, I can't go, obviously. Your brother can't. He's studying in another city. And he said, you're going to have to go. You're going to have to go with your mom and your sisters because they need you. I said, <laughs> I mean, how can you say no, no to of that? Course, of you course. You can't, you can't it's, really it's say commitment, no right? to that. It's like this responsibility that you have to take. And, and what's that responsibility been like? It's been great. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, not so great because you already have your responsibilities. It's a big weight to have on your shoulders. Yeah, especially I was, I guess, almost 17 at the time. That's insane. So, That's you know, insane. I still had to think about my high school, then, you know, uh, college, etc. But we made the passports, the visa. In 15 days, we asked for seven days because the plan was... <laughs> and this is probably illegal. Don't do this, <laughs> <laughs> listeners at home. Uh, the plan was to ask for seven days. So we'll get, I guess, seven days as tourists, but we would stay here. And then, you know, we won't have the visa. We could still come back. We could just go to the police, I guess. I don't know how it works, really. But they could still take us home. But we would just come here and stay and try to find a way to get our paperwork done, to get our rights, and maybe even citizenship. That would take a long time, still to this day, you know, trying to get that. But when we came here, uh, things just drastically changed. Like my vision about France and the external world drastically changed. What was your initial perception of France like? Well, you know, access to school, you know, healthcare, obviously, which is true. Um, and just easier life. That was the initial perception. Because we were promised an easier life. Okay. You know, you have a family member who tells you, yeah, come here, you make everything <laughs> cool Do you again. know what? I think this is like a global thing where yeah. from, from an Asian background, I know when people from India, for instance, so my heritage... The perception they have of the UK or America is like it's a gold mine. And, you know, if you go over there, you're going to have gold in your back garden. You're going to have money on your trees and stuff. And so they come to the UK or they come to, to you know, America, whatever, to in, with this envision of having this amazing greater life. And then they realize that actually it's not like that. And you have to work really hard. And, and the job market is super duper tough. So to yeah. get, you know, a decent job and a decent salary. Sometimes you have to work twice, maybe even three times as hard as the normal person would just to get half of what they get, for example. But yeah, that's something I had to learn the hard way. We, as a family, had to learn the hard way. So we came here, I remember we spent the first month at that, you know, the family member's place. Uh, they were already four, him, his wife, two kids. Mm. We were four in a studio in Paris. Ah, so yeah, that's so already, you know, you're, that's you're a red flag. stepping on eggshells and on each other's toes. Yeah. And they didn't know how to handle it, which, to be fair, I, if I was at their place, I wouldn't know how to handle it either. Too many people to help at it's, the same it's, time. It, that's a really interesting concept because I think anywhere that you stay, when, when it's not your own place, you're always a welcome guest at the start. You're always a welcome guest. But I think there's always a timeline as to how long you're a welcome guest. And it comes to a point, and, and I've seen it within, within my own family, I've seen it within my own community, where you can stay for a, you know, a week, you can stay for a couple of weeks, three weeks, and then, <laughs> then the situation and the tenseness within the house changes and no longer yeah. are you spoken with the same politeness because it, it's like you're, you're a bit of a burden. And it's unfortunate, but I think I've seen it quite, quite frequently. But it's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, people have their own lives. 
to take care of. So when you're added to that mix, it makes things complicated. So we spent a month there, then, you know, in true fashion, <laughs> they throw us out. They just said, leave, because of some problems that, you know, yeah. happened between him and my mom. And we had to leave that place. And thankfully, my uncle, her brother, my mom's brother, lives here in France. And he has some friends, you know, in Paris, in big cities. So one of his friends came to the rescue. And then he hosted us for two months. He was super nice, like one of the nicest guys I know to this day. He hosted us for two months. I obviously had uh, been admitted to school. So in order to stay at school, I had to be somewhere closer. Uh, my dad spoke to a friend of his who spoke to a friend of his, who then, you know, hosted me for those couple of months. And things were doing okay for a while. Things were doing great. Like, you could still see that brink, that little light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And you could start you know, to reach out for it. You have it. a level of focus still. But then, again, you spend a little bit of time in someone's place and problems start to arise, which is, I guess, natural. So we couldn't stay there any longer. Uh, I had established contact at the same time with a family member here in Toulouse someone from my mom's family and you know she would tell us just come in Toulouse I'll you know we'll sort out the situation you're in we'll see a lawyer we'll see a social assistant they will help you get the rights you deserve to get and I remember she said you deserve to get because that was a game changer what was your mental state of mind in this situation because there's this there's a huge level of uncertainty and I think like the biggest uncertainty you can have in your life is where is my home? Where am I staying? You know, where am I going to be tomorrow? Yeah. So how at this super young age, how are you, <laughs> how are you coping with that? And at the same time, as you said, you're responsible for your family. Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's it was interesting in the sense that so this is something I when I mentioned the seven days thing with the visa. So this is something that still boggles my mind to this day. We asked for seven days. They gave us two years, which is crazy. They never do that. And basically, when you're given two years, you have to get back to Morocco every three months. So you, you have like a two-year window to travel to France whenever you want. But every three months, you, you have, have to, to break, get back yeah, you have to break and the then come cycle, back yeah. to France. And that was around that time. So we could either come back to Morocco and call it, you know, this is a failed experience. We tried, we failed. It's okay. Let's just figure it out. Or... You could stay and fight a bit more. So I was the one to make the decision, actually. My mom asked me, she said, I don't know what to do. Do you want us to stay and we will struggle? Or do you want us to go back and we will struggle? Yeah. But at least if we go back, we will struggle, you know, with the whole land. family. Yeah. Somewhere where you have your own dignity, your own, you know, everyone knows who you are. And you know the Everyone place. respects yeah. you. You know the place, the you know place the knows you, mm. you know the system. And I told her, I don't want to come back. Now, this is me who three months prior said, I am never coming to France with you guys. <laughs> and almost had a fight with my mom about it. Argument, rather. And three months later, I was the one to tell her, no, I don't want to go back. Because somehow, like, amidst all this, you know, craziness and all this uncertainty, I have kind of started to find myself in a way. Right. 
started to find my voice. So growing up, I think since the age of five, I started to stutter. And I have developed this speech Stammer. impediment okay. because of, I guess, some emotional trouble. I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah, it's I remember having this talk with my dad. And, and I thought it was maybe because of a car crash I was involved in at the age, at the age of five. But he said, I think it's around the, the time you started school. And he told me before that I was very confident. You know, I would talk, you know, very, um, like, construct concise sentences and just have so much confidence when I talk. And I don't know that because I don't remember at all. And when he told me that, it shocked me. Because for years, I think from the age of five till probably 18, I was still struggling to make myself heard. Right. Especially in public places, especially in a class full of 30 people. It was impossible to me. How, how did you resolve this, Nama? <laughs> because I, um, I don't know if you've seen uh, The King's Speech. I didn't. <laughs> Many of my friends told me to watch it. They said, this movie is for you. Yeah, so they, they have like these cool techniques in how to remove their stammer. So I remember the scene where they put like a whole load of marbles in his mouth and they get him to talk. And then at the end of the film, I think he gets his, he works out a system where he's singing. So he's speaking uh, to the microphone, for instance, but he's doing it in such a way that it has a rhythm and rhyme to it. Mm. So he's singing his words and that stops his stammer. So well, that's interesting. I've, I never thought of that. So how, how, did, how did you resolve this? I think it just happened naturally over time. Okay. I think the fact that I had this kind of responsibility thrown at me, to me, I just didn't have a choice. Mm. And I remember having this conversation with my mom. So when I, we were in Paris, I basically had to go to the rectorat, I don't know how you call that in English, to get admitted to school. So I, ha I had to present my own, you know, file and say, guys, I need to be in school, blah, okay. blah, blah. So like the local council. Um... Yeah, and one of the ladies there, she was very rude to me. And that put me, you know, in the spot and I started to stutter. I couldn't help it. She just took away all of my confidence by her rude, uh, you know, just from the get-go. What do you want, mister? Okay, and, so you know, I think the stammer is associated with a level of confidence or to feel a level of anxiety or, or stress and then that causes you... To stammer even more. Mm. So I remember that day I have never felt so humiliated because I couldn't talk. I had so much to say, but I couldn't say it. The words wouldn't come out. And I just told my mom, that's it, I can't do this anymore. Enough is enough. I don't want to ever be in this position ever again where someone is talking down to me or at me. Yeah. And I just watch them silently without talking back to them or without defending myself. Yeah. And I guess ever since, you know, slowly but surely, I started to uh, get rid of this, you know, stammering. Build the courage to have a voice, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a super duper interesting topic for uh, many people around the world, especially young people right now is stress management and how to deal with it and uh, to be honest I've, I've recently been kind of dealing with uh, some level of stress which has been work related and I think it has a lot to do with this move from the UK to France I'm a newbie here and then quarantine occurring so as opposed to being a fresh face in the office where you get to find your feet you get to interact with your colleagues your peers people give you a level of guidance I'm doing that all by myself now in the comfort of my home but with no one around me yeah. And so I'm trying to orientate myself and, and, try and find my feet 
in my job role, but it's a struggle. And therefore, I think there has been a level of stress coming into my life from that. And and the way I personally managed it is is obviously the, the basic ways in which people say is um, eating right, making sure you're exercising, making sure you're not self-isolating and actually interacting with people. And I think that is that has been the biggest um, form of uh, treatment for me is to speak to people about it. So to speak to my friends, to speak to my family, let them know what my problem is so they can also, also offer their advice. And at times it's not even, I'm not even looking for the right advice from them. I'm just looking for someone to listen to what I have to say. To be and that helps tremendously, tremendously. It does. I think when you, when you just put your, how you feel into words, it does help. Like instead of keeping it inside all trapped, when you just talk about it, when you communicate, when you convey your feelings, it, it does help. So coming back to the story of yes. how, how you arrived in France. I was at high school at the time, which meant I had the right to go to the school restaurant. I don't know how you call it. In French, it's like... Cafeteria? The cafeteria. Yeah. And I would eat there. And despite all of that, I had still lost seven kilos. Wow. Which is... At a young unlike, age, that's a 17 lot of pounds, 18 pounds, something like that. My mom lost 17. That's insane. And she was in a very critical condition. Like, when the doctor saw her three months later, she was like, whoa, you should be in bed right now. You should be in a hospital bed, not standing up on your feet. How can you stand up on your feet? And I still remember, because it was very tough, emotionally tough, especially mentally challenging. Uh, we felt trapped all the time. We felt like all those promises were just a mirage. And... Again, I know how hard it is to take care of four people. But that person could have helped us more than they did. Mm. They could have just guided us or just let us talk to the social assistant they promised us to take. They promised to take us to or the lawyer instead of putting fear, especially inside my mom's head. If you go to the social assistant, they'll take away your kids. Oh, man. You'll never see them again. Yeah. They'll take you back to Morocco and that's it. And as someone who had no rights, you know, you have no piece of paper, no legal uh, piece of paper that says I can stay here. You can be out anytime. And I think it was tougher on my mom because I had an escape. I would go to school and I would forget all about it. Those seven hours a day I would spend at school. It's like it never happened. I'm just there with friends I just made. There was an American guy who was with us on a year of exchange and we became very close friends because at the time I, I was, I guess, one of the best English speaking people in class. So we immediately clicked and we became good pals. And then, you know, the rest of the, the classroom, good friends I made over the years. And that helped me forget about what was going on at that person's home where we were hosted. Yeah. For a while. Gives you a mental home. break from the, yeah, yeah. from the day. And around the same time, we had established contact with an association called Spiral. And my mom, and actually her aunt, went to the social assistant. But it was very tough. Like, my mom told me it was very tough at first because she was still feeling trapped. She couldn't say what she really wanted to say. She couldn't express how she really felt. So she had to fake it in front of that family member. And 
basically, after three or four uh, appointments, she told us you can call this number, Sonkaz, uh, 115. And that's like a center for emergency... Emergency homing. Emergency homing. And I still remember I would be at school, and after every class I would just leave, call them. Is there any place? Oh, wow. Four people. No. Désolé, we're sorry. There, isn't, there are no places for you. And it lasted like a month, just every day. I had to call them at 8 in the morning, then at 7 in the evening, because those were the times where you can get hold of them. And also throughout the day I would still try once or twice yeah just to talk to them to tell them look we really need to leave this place and then i would lie to them i would say we don't have a place because if you say you're with someone they would then you're not seen as a serious condition you're not priority not a priority Mm -hmm. so i had to tell them where we're in the streets right now come pick us up and we would like prepare our luggage be ready anytime no one would come and then that same association spiral Someone who works there told us there is another solution. There's another solution for you. And he said, you can try to go to a squat. So he knew a, you know, a group of people who open abandoned buildings and just uh, help people who don't have access to shelter get there, you know, have their own place, at least for a while. Even if it's temporary, it was still a good option. And for us, it seemed like the only option. So again, my mom comes to me. Should we do this? Or do we just have to continue? You were the, the decision maker. Yeah, and every time I would tell her, yeah, we just... Let's do it. Let's go. I can't stay here. You can't stay here. Let's go. So the first day, I remember, we meet up with the guy who, from the association who meets with his contact with the group. And they take us to this place. It's in Compons Cavarelli. So we go there. And the first thing we see is blood dripping on the oh, ground. Oh, man. And now here's a context. My sisters were 12 and a half and 6 at the time. So for someone who is 6 to see blood, broken doors, you know. It's like a horror film. Bark noises. It's what, it's what you read total about. Total darkness. In, yeah. No, you know, like no lights. Uh, only cold water. But the moment we went inside the apartment they gave us was one of the, f- the first moments we ever felt truly free. Wow. Like, finally, we are actually... You have your own place. Like a family again. We can actually behave the way we want. Yeah. We can dress up the way we want. Your own you know. peace of mind. Yeah, yeah, your own peace of mind. And I remember they basically had to do like a meeting of all the people who lived in that building to see whether or not they would accept us among them. Wow. So they have their own little political system, yeah, yeah. essentially, and they, they vote you in or they vote you out. Yeah, if they vote you out, you're out. <laughs> Good luck. Find another place. But they vote us in. They, you know, they saw how cute my sisters were. I was still a young guy They in held high like a, school. a proper council? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they, where they like all just, sit around, they listen to what you have to say, and then they They, then they listen vote. to your story, and they say, oh my God. okay, you're in. That's, that's insane. Yeah, it's, an, it's totally insane, but it's cool. I think it's cool. Because it also helps them, you know, 
uh, avoid any conflict or avoid any, any conflict yeah, or weirdos even, or yeah exactly exactly so we stayed and then you know just some of the residents would come to us with uh, you know some food like here's the food for tonight if you need something just um you know i live in number eight on the other side that's an, that's amazing where people that seem to have the least are the ones that actually offer the most because they've been through rock bottom they understand what it's like to have literally nothing and therefore they have this sense of kindness about yeah. them it is incredible to see that someone who doesn't know you who doesn't really even know your intentions you could be ill you know, you like have ill intentions towards everyone in that building and be a harmful person, but they don't care. They see beyond that. They just want to give, and that's it. Because they see that you need something, and maybe they have that thing that you need. Maybe they don't. Maybe they just have a little piece of it, but they would still give you half of that piece. And are you still in touch with these individuals? That Actually, you've met yes. In these so, you know, my sister's birthday was five days ago my younger sister and two of these people like of like the guy I just told you about who came to us the first day was at the birthday oh wow S almost six years later so you, you must have a really strong form of bond with, with these individuals we because do. because you've seen the lowest points in their life <laughs> yeah. essentially and we've shared so many meals together we, we like we've played football together um, especially with the guys I mean, just the number of matches we played. Yeah. Crazy. And, and also, this must have affected your relationship in a positive way with your family. So with your, with your mother, your sisters. With my mom especially. I was never, you know, very close to my mom. But when we came here, she would confide in me. She would tell me mm. things that... You were the support system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, f for, for a while, I was the one she talks to. And I was there. I would listen. Whenever things are wrong, we would talk about it. We would you know, try to find a solution, even to this day. And I, th I think that goes with all relationships. Is is it's you? You only create a stronger bond when you've gone through very crazy scenarios, very testing scenarios, because that's when you learn, and that's when you see the true colors of a person come out. Apologies. I'm going to try and bring this to to dating, where um, <laughs> where. I know that you can turn up to, when you're first meeting someone, you can turn up to a million dates and you can look your best and they can look their best and you sit at a coffee shop and you have a nice conversation and you feel like you're learning a lot about this person. But in fact, you're only seeing the outer surface, the very outer surface. It's like the tip outer of the layer. iceberg, as they say. And it's only when you're with this individual in testing circumstances where something has gone really wrong that you actually get to understand their true character. And I think the scenario you're talking about with your mother is, is exactly one of them, where previously your relationship might have just been the tip of the iceberg, but when you have testing circumstances, then you understand the true character and the true intentions, and that really brings people together. Yeah, yeah, it does. And like, I think the first time I told my mom, you know, mom, I love you, or kissed her on the forehead, was here in France, the first ever hug I gave my mom. Yeah. Like, you know, let's forget about the hugs you give her as a kid, because that doesn't count. <laughs> I don't even remember those. <laughs> but the first hug I gave her was here in France. I, I broke that that barrier of just, I'm your son. And it, I think it's this is... totally normal to do this, which to me at the time didn't seem that way. Yeah. Because I didn't think I was that close. 
I think this is so deep rooted to culture and, and how you've true. been raised. So I think even within for myself from an Asian community is just saying the words I love you or showing emotion <laughs> is something that you're never taught. In fact, it's something that you're is seen as being quite a negative thing. Yeah. Of of for instance, if, if you break down and you cry, it's like no, boys shouldn't cry. Men men don't cry. Well, and, I cried a lot. <laughs> 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 you were saying watching Bollywood films as well, That's which I really cool. want to touch on at some point. <laughs> no, <laughs> that too. It's okay to not be strong all the time, and it's okay. What was your final Cinderella moment? What do you mean by the Cinderella moment? So when not when the world when the world was okay and you were at the light at the end of the tunnel. Ah, I mean that happened a long time ago. I think like three or four years ago. So basically. The building where we went to, we spent a year or like eight, ten months there. And then we had to move to a different building because that one was supposed to be, you know, raised to the ground by the owners. We actually had a meeting with the owners. I still have a picture on my laptop from that meeting. Just a, a, an almost 18-year-old me yeah. talking to 50-ish, you know, year old guys about why I should stay in the building they own. That's insane. Which is insane. And uh, after that, we went to a different building in Barrière de Paris, where I live right now. Like, not in the same building, obviously, but in the same area. And that was around the time of my final year in high school. And that's where we got in touch with this lawyer. So he told us, you have a solution, guys, is that you could uh, apply for something that isn't asylum, because in Morocco there is no war. We didn't run away because of some political mm. reasons. He said you can apply for protection subsidiaire. In English, maybe subsidiary protection. Now I'm just doing word, word, you know, word for word translation. But he told us to do that, and what would happen is, for a year, the time that they treat our uh, demand. Your case. Our case they would give us an allowance of 500 euros a month, which was great at the time. Yeah, you know, I can imagine. You go from zero to 500, you can buy new stuff. You can buy food. and You can buy and food and new well. stuff and eat better than you do. Um, so we said, yes, of course, we'll, we'll do the file. So, you know, we presented our story. We actually went to Amnesty International to, you know, work on that file, to, you know, Put the story and the details to it. Why did we come here? What are we running from? Mm, make sure it's correlated. Make sure it's correlated. And and then he told us they'll never accept. They will never accept your case. But at least by the time they finish studying your case, you will get a year of 500 euros, yeah, which was benefit. perfect again. We had to go to Paris, to Lofpra, which is the... I think French office of foreigners, you know, refugees, something like that. And we had to go there and be interviewed for hours. My mom sat there for three hours just to make sure the story fits what she's telling them during the interview yeah. to see if she's lying or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they interviewed me very quickly. They just asked me a couple of questions. Because you've probably seen as a minor. Yeah, but also to see if it fits with, you know... Your mom's story. With my mom's story. Obviously it did. And then... A few months later, I think six months later, around 2017, 2017, we got a letter 
So I, I, went, I was actually at the uni at the time. I was at the university. It was my first year. And I just go with my mom to the post office next near the uni. And we get that letter. And I open it and I read, you know, the Ofpra decides to grant you the protection. The celebration must have been and, quite something. And at first I didn't believe it. I was like, oh, okay. But then my reaction was very stoic. I just told my mom, we got it. And she looked at me in disbelief. She's like, no, no way. No way. It's impossible. I said, we got it. And then she started crying. And she, she just called yeah. like one of her best friends here, told her like, I mean, the news. Just, just hearing the story and the struggles that you've gone through to finally be given, you know, official validation. Yeah. And to, to end the nightmare, officially end the nightmare, must have been a very, very emotional experience. It, it was. And th that was, the, the, I think, the changing point. That was when the state actually offered us, you know, housing the first time. It wasn't you know, the best. It was decent. But it was what we needed at the time. And, you know... Brick by brick, we got a better apartment, the one we, we live now. And now I have, you know, an ID. Like, I can just walk around the streets, roam freely, yeah. if a cop. And he's like, hey, show us some ID. <laughs> I could actually show them some ID. Here you go. <laughs> instead of being scared to death. The story is incredible to me. And I think just the, the life skills and the development that you gained throughout this process has probably set you for life. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, in terms of the level of stress that you've had to deal with, seeing the bigger picture. I mean, every single day, people people look look down on themselves because they're like, "Oh my God, I don't have this," or you know, "I'm I'm I'm scared about this," or whatever. Whereas you have a such bigger perspective of the world now, of actually what it means to be rock bottom and to come out of that. So yeah. any other problem would be seen as being so inferior now to the bigger scope of things. Of course. I know just from earlier conversations that we've had is life in Morocco wasn't always that bad in the sense that I really want to touch on the fact that you watched Bollywood films in, in Morocco and, and you're quite the fan. And like, so I've met Messi a few times out, out and about, uh, just, just socializing. And he knows a lot about Indian films, a lot about Indian actors, even Indian dance moves. <laughs> so yeah. where did this interest come from? Um, so yeah, growing up, Again, like things were, weren't great before, but growing up, things were amazing. Uh, so basically we had two movie theaters that one of them was belonged to my dad and a partner who was Hindi. And the second belonged to my, I think my grandpa and two of his brothers. But my dad was the one, you know, taking care of business. He was the one to manage both. Yeah. And the theater every week would show two movies one english like like a hollywood movie mm -hmm. predominantly in french and the second one would be hindi <laughs> with arabic subtitles and you know it's amazing as you guessed it someone who is the son of a movie theater owner you naturally after school almost every day you're watching the film you watch a movie so at the time it would be either a an english movie or the end of the english movie and then Bollywood. Back-to-back -back films on a back daily basis. Films. So what, what has been like your favorite films that you've seen? And who are your favorite actors? Oh, I've seen so many movies, <laughs> dude, but, but mainly the old ones. Not the very old ones, but like 90s, uh, early 2000s movies. 
And I guess, you know, our mutual friend <laughs> knows. One of my favorite actors is Amir Khan. <laughs> okay. To this day, like, the guy is killing it. Every movie he puts out, every portrayal. Actually, I was taking a shower today listening to some songs from Talash. Because <laughs> it's, you know, I guess it's just the way I grew up and the influence these movies had. And when you said, like, I, I cry when I watch Bollywood movies, it's true, it's true. I remember during quarantine, when I was with him, um, he, he woke up at like 11 or 12 in the morning, and I was still awake watching Kuch Kuch Hotai <laughs> and crying my eyeballs out. So j- just for audience members that don't know, these references, these are classic Bollywood films throughout the, the 90s and 2000s that really shaped the Bollywood industry that you see today. Uh, the other day I was watching a video on YouTube from some VFX guys who discuss some, you know, Bollywood VFX. And one of the movies was a Shah Rukh Khan movie. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the name of that movie, but he plays a very short guy, like a smaller version of him. And, like, the effect, like, the way they shot the movie is so crazy because they had to shoot scenes with him by himself on a green screen and then shoot, you know, the other actors and then shoot him with the other actors or something like that. I don't really remember, but it's, it's crazy the way it was filmed. I'm just pulling up which film there. Just, <laughs> yeah, just, go ahead. Just a reference for my audience. Zero. Zero. And I think Zero is also on Netflix. So again, for anyone that doesn't watch Bollywood films, Shah Rukh Khan is perhaps the most popular actor in the world. And that is no joke. His, his audience is massive and global. He is seen as a Tom Cruise of Bollywood. And he's an individual that cannot walk uh, without any form of security in any country around the world. And this is something interesting that I learned about him because he came on the David Letterman show, which I've is on which was on, on Netflix. And even in America, when he's roaming the streets in random places, people know who he is. With Bollywood films, for some reason, they've had such a global reach in any continent around the world. People watch Bollywood films, and therefore this guy is super-duper famous. He inspired a generation of lovers. <laughs> <laughs> so that actually brings me nicely onto the next topic that we should discuss. Ooh, dating, <laughs> and again, th- this, is, this is the popular topic on my podcast. Okay, that okay. Everyone loves to hear about <laughs> <laughs> And is dating. So for yourself, what has your experience been like dating? It's been great. <laughs> it's been amazing, what do you want me to say? I mean, you know, now that you know a little bit of the story, which is something I keep to myself most of the time. Like, I rarely share this during my dates, unless I really feel comfortable with the person. I mean, th- this is probably not what you share on your first date. Of course it's, not. It's much more serious conversation, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's probably when you want to know more about the person, where you start delving a little bit deeper. And I'm someone who usually likes to open up. I do it more now than I used to, but I, I actually like to open up sometimes to so just, hey, let's share facts yeah. about ourselves. Let's talk about our stories. And in France, at first, I remember having like this conversation with one of my best friends in Morocco, and we would always get friend zoned, he and I, <laughs> all the time. We would always be in the friend zone. It was crazy. When I came to France, so... You know, my escape from the whole situation was, oh, let's just find a girl and, you know, forget all about it. And I would find a girl and I would get friend zones <laughs> every single time. Do you know why you used to get friend zones? Because I was zones? just so bad at talking to girls. First of all, I never showed any, like, 
any dating intentions, I would be very friendly, very friendly, because I didn't know how to, how to, let's say, seduce, if that's the word. <laughs> Although I don't really like to use this word, but I think that's the word. I didn't know how to seduce. So you basically treated them like your male friend would be, so you'd have the same level of conversation, chit-chat. Yeah, I would just be very nice, friend-zoned. and then, you know, instantly friend-zoned. By the time I started to, uh, to not stammer as much as I did, that gave me, or I guess boosted my confidence to talk to more girls. Mm. And then it just snowballed ever since. So do you think quantity of girls, i.e. dating lots of people, has helped your experience of, in terms of your own self-development, uh, but in terms of how to approach females and how to converse with them? I mean, it helped both ways. It really did. First of all, it helped me kind of know what I want, but also what I don't want mm. in a woman. So when I see certain behaviors, to me, that are red flags, I would just drop it. I think that's such an important comment that you make is a lot of people go out on, on their first date with someone with so much... Expectations. Exactly. They, go, they, they have so much expectations for the date where they're like, this is the one. We've had incredible conversation on the phone. <laughs> you know, in, in a year's time, they can see themselves getting married to this We're person. Make babies. Or, yeah, exactly. And they go with this, this level of energy. And when that's not reciprocated and, and when that's not what they, what they end up actually feeling during the date, they feel quite rejected and quite low and and like oh you know there's no one out there for me and and what have you but actually it's not about having all this expectation on one person but knowing what you want and you have to meet various people in order to understand what you want as well and something that i think is also important is that sometimes we feel like we need a person to be a certain way just because of the culture we grew up in yeah or because of our society we feel like this person has to dress a certain way or look a certain way <laughs> yes. or behave a certain way. For sure. But that's not what we really want. That's what society tells us we should want. When, when you're born in that environment, it's easily absorbed as well. So from an Asian culture, uh, women previously, they were seen as the housewife. So they weren't people that would go out and, and make an income and, and they're not also bread breadwinners as, as such. They were individuals that t- took care of the house, they took care of the children and that was it. And they relied on the resource, i.e. financial resource, from their uh, husband. Therefore, in, 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 that, in that scenario, the husband or the male of the house was always in control of everyone's life within that household. And I think a lot of people have grown up from my generation living in that same household. So even though we have now a more modern outview of life and how females should be with female empowerment, feminism, etc., there's a little part of you that is still attached to that cultural thing that you previously had, which can hold people back. Yeah. I also think, because when you said the man has, you know, the control, the breadwinner, mm. I think that's also a misconception in the sense that you can be the breadwinner, but you shouldn't assume that you have the control just because of that. Yeah. You shouldn't think that you should be the one controlling just because you have, you know, you win the bread. For sure. Uh, you should just appreciate your partner as much as you can. And this is a problem. We feel like, like coming from my country too, we feel like once you reach a certain status, you're the man, you're untouchable. Mm. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want, and no one can touch you, which shouldn't be the case. So whilst you've been dating around in France, what have you learned? What have you learned about dating in France and, <laughs> uh, and about yourself and what you wish to have in your partner? Wow, that's a very um, tough question to answer, <laughs> to be honest, because I never thought about it. 
I never thought about what I have learned. Welcome to dive deep with those. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive deep. Uh, wow. I think the most important thing is that it helped me open my mind a bit more. So, you know, growing up in Morocco, I, I've always felt kind of different as opposed to others, but I've also had just, I guess, this close-mindedness in me in the sense that I wanted the girl to, again, look a certain way, behave a certain way, talk a certain way. And when you date, you know, it's a couple of girls, you realize that that's not the case, mm. that you can indeed fall in love with someone who is totally different from what you wanted initially. Yeah. And that helps you, like, just kind of broaden your perspective when it comes to dating. Like, instead of saying, okay, I want to date someone from Morocco. Actually, that's something that I would never do, <laughs> to be honest. But you want to try something else. You want to try someone who looks differently. You want to try someone who talks differently, mm. who sounds differently. Maybe who doesn't even speak French. So you can just, I, I guess, speak in English together. You know, you have all these scenarios or what if scenarios so I, I guess you're open to meeting people from any background you're open to to all things but is that also true for how your parents perceive perception of what they wished for their son to do or is that something that holds you back my parents are totally cool about it um i actually talk about this with my dad a lot like yeah me and my dad over the years have gotten closer and he's like my best friend right now like we would just talk about girls and dating in general that's so cool to have that's which so is cool because cool. we're like 34 years apart yeah but or 33 years apart but we would still talk about that yeah and sometimes we would have these crazy conversations that start with girls and end with us talking about spirituality and religion yeah and like the deep stuff that's a, such a cool relationship so i mean talking from my perspective and and from my culture it's such a taboo subject to be talking about girls talking about dating talking about sex so you're never actually taught or given any guidance from your parents because it's it's subject areas they don't want to they don't want to touch so the level of education you gain is either from what they teach you in school but more often than not what your friends tell you and what your friends tell you is always going to be an exaggerated version of what reality really is yeah and therefore you're, you're grown with no level of understanding of, of 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 these areas i think it can affect you and your standards so an example that came to my mind when we started talking about this would be, because you said friends, would be exposure to, let's say, porn mm. or pornographic, you know, yeah. videos. And when you're a young kid and you're exposed to that, it could alter the way you see women, for example, or the way you perceive sex. Mm. You would think about it differently. Precisely. It's, it's super exaggerated. You have people with ripped, amazing, incredible bodies <laughs> that are lasting for a long, long time. Exactly. <laughs> and it's not a true scope of reality. And it's not a true scope of actually someone's love life. Again, even in my culture, it's taboo to talk about these things with your parents. But I've had, again, with my mom, we've become super close. So she knows. Not all the time. <laughs> I don't, you know, always talk about it with her, but uh, she she's met like a couple of girls that I dated over the years. Um, my dad, however, we talk all the time. Sometimes I would ask him for advice, like, "Hey, I'm dating this girl, and this thing happened, and I don't know how to handle it. <laughs> what would you do if you were me?" Right. And he's more experienced. He knows. Yes, yes. So he would he would just tell me, "Yeah, just do this, do that." 
try, you take get, your time. You'd get some real advice from yeah, yeah. someone who's been there. And someone <laughs> and who knows you. It. Yeah, and knows you too. So he knows how you would actually uh, apply that advice. Awesome. Sometimes you would listen to dating advice, but it doesn't really apply that much to your life. But he knows how you could apply it to your own life. Well, everything being rejected reason, right? helps more than being successful. Because when you get rejected, like you know what not to do. And you just never do it again. Hmm. It's how you take that rejection. Yeah. So either you can take it negatively where you're like, okay, I'm not good enough. Uh, or you can take it in a way in which, what do I need to do to develop in order to further advance myself? And, and that comes to dating as again. well, where a lot of people get rejection upon rejection upon rejection. So this could be either you're not e even able to get a date, or when you go on the date, the, the person that you're speaking with is, is not interested within you. And then that can that can kind of over overshadow you know, your perception on on women and on dating and saying oh they're all like this and you, yeah. you know those little phrases you hear do, you know boys are all dogs or whatever well, women but, are all the same yeah exactly. <laughs> they're all the same <laughs> but, but that that's purely based on the experience that you've had you can't tarnish everyone with the same paintbrush no, so it's a level you shouldn't. of and, and and if you have been rejected and you feel like there's something wrong then you do need to look within and say actually what am i offering it could be what you're bringing to the table because People, again, and, and delving back into uh, why, something that I have quite a, a bugbear with is people are looking to find happiness within their partner. So they're going in with a half-filled half cup, which is their own, and they're expecting it to be filled by someone else. Yeah. And I think that's a complete negative way in which you should be seeing dating. You should come with a full cup. You should be a complete rounded circle. And it's a matter of how can this individual supplement my life now? Not complete my life, not make me happy, but what can they do to supplement my life? Yeah. And I think that perception, when you go in with that perspective in dating, it changes the game completely. And also, like when you said, what do I bring to the table? I think that's something that uh, when you're, like the older you get, the more important it becomes. So mm -hmm. as a student, you know, if you date someone, they don't really care about what you bring to the table. It's puppy love. Especially when it comes to like, like whether it's your job or you, like the amount of money you make, yeah. which shouldn't be that important, but sometimes it is to offer a little bit of security mm. for the person, which is totally understandable. So I think the older you get, the more grounded you should be when it comes like, to your life, I think basically. It, it comes with pros and cons. I feel when the older people get, the, the, also, the more set they become in their ways. It should be a bit more fluid, I feel. You should be open to, to accepting change. And, and I think with age, and I see this within my parents, I see them with this within other people, is the less flexible you become as you become older. You just accept life to be through whatever you see yeah. through your two eyes. And it is what it is. The world is always evolving. People are always changing. People are always adapting. People are always growing in different ways. And this affects your daily life. And so I think you have to be open to change in any part of your life. You have to be willing to change. And I think that's the hardest skill that we can have as humans is how to unlearn something and relearn something else. Or how to evolve something you've learned. Before I allow you to leave, <laughs> oh no! there's one final thing. And this is something that I'm trying to bring to every episode is if there's one piece of advice you would share, what would it be? Wow. Just now I thought of a quote from a game I'm playing called Apex Legends. Because like the character I play as always starts saying, I knew you'd bring this one back piece to of gaming. advice, amigo. <laughs> um, <laughs> play video games, people. <laughs> no. That's my advice to you. <laughs> play video games. 
No, uh, a piece of advice. I think this is this will sound very cliche, but it's okay. Who cares? Whenever you feel like you know, life doesn't move forward, or every every door is closed down, like every door gets shut in your face, and you feel like that's it. There is no escape. Like I've hit rock bottom. I don't know what to do. There is no plan. You always have to either see if there's a window that you can get open. There is always a light at the end of the tunnel, no matter what. That would be, I guess, my little advice for you. That's amazing. That's, Man, I hate giving advice. Beautifully said. And and one other thing that I want you to do is is to plug something or share something. So this could be uh, a, a new book that you've come across, some new music, a new film that you just want everyone else, <laughs> the audience that I have, to to know about. So. Is there something you'd like to plug? Or a video game. <laughs> Play Apex Legends, guys. <laughs> Respawn, pay me, please. No, um, I mean, I have done a presentation in class about... Uh, well, it was actually during confinement, during quarantine, about crunch and video games, like crunching in the video game industry and how most of the workers are being crunched, like, you know... They would work 100 hours a week sometimes, and it drives them, you know, crazy. Mm-hmm. Not crazy in the literal sense, but some of them suffer from, like, PTSD. They suffer from uh, memory, short-term memory loss sometimes. And I've read some articles about it. And this is one of the industries where, I guess, the syndicate isn't powerful enough to face the big companies and the companies have a habit of doing this usually at the end cycle of every game. They would hire a bunch of people, you know, work it tirelessly, and then send them off just before the game is released. And I think it's the industry with the less job security. I have Thank one you. last piece of advice, though. If you have a podcast, never go out the night before. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> never do that, guys. That's a good video. Video. <laughs> this will be cut out. I forgot how I finished my podcast. I don't remember. I've, how you I've forgotten. Podcast. It's been. I, I remember doing it last in the last episode, but I've completely forgotten what I say. So that is the end of pot. So that is the end of the podcast. I hope everyone's enjoyed it. Stay tuned for more episodes of Dive Deep with Dush. And see you soon. Perhaps one day. I finished it wrong again. <laughs>